the Senate having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, upon two articles of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives, and two-thirds of the senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein, it is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. Now that the impeachment trial is officially over and President Donald Trump is acquitted, CQ on Congress is going to look at what the trial has meant for the presidency and for Congress. We are going to try something different today. I'm going to turn the host chair over to our executive producer, Joanne Levine. You might wonder why Sean is sitting here as a guest and not the host. Well, it began last week when we were waiting in line for lunch, and Sean began telling me about some of his analysis of what President Trump's inevitable acquittal would mean for Congress. I thought it was so interesting and provocative that I decided it was worthy of a podcast. So let's get to it. So let's just start at the beginning. Explain your thesis. Okay. First, regardless of what you think about the impeachment and the trial and whether President Trump should be removed from office or not, the point I make in the story is that Trump is part of a building trend we've seen over over many years, over maybe a couple decades, of expanding presidential power. And he's done this to an extreme level, more than his predecessors. And he's done it in two ways. First, he's interpreted laws in which Congress has delegated power to the president broadly, taking as much for himself as he can. And second, he's defied Congress in a way that previous presidents have not. He hasn't complied with congressional subpoenas. He's refused to turn over documents. That has never happened before. Let's break this down a little bit because there's so much there. Let's start with what you mentioned as this has been an increasing trend over the last few decades. Can you talk about other presidents that have sort of seized some of the executive powers? Absolutely. I mean, go back to George W. Bush. He famously would add what he called signing statements to bills that he was signing into law that said, I'm going to ignore this section of the bill, essentially. It was very controversial at the time. It's like when you sign a law as president, you're supposed to execute that law. Your job is to carry out that law, not to say I agree with parts of it and uh, I don't agree with other parts. Now, Barack Obama, uh, Republicans very famously complained that he was ignoring Congress and was expanding presidential power, most notably in his decision to offer legal status to unauthorized immigrants who had been brought to this country illegally when they were children. These are the so-called dreamers. And that was a huge to-do at the time. And Republicans took it to court. So this was more than just partisan bickering. The past few presidents have actually seized a certain amount of power from Congress. Absolutely. I think and it's a reflection of the fact that Congress is increasingly polarized, as the nation is. It's increasingly partisan, and it's having difficulty getting things done. And this is saying to executives, from George W. Bush to to Donald Trump, I should do things on my own. You use a word, um, or you used a word with me, that in a past life might have been seen as 
an editorial observation. And instead, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how it's become fact. And you called President Trump imperial or that the White House is acting in an imperial manner. Can you explain? And I'm not the only one who said this. I mean, Lamar Alexander, the Republican senator from Tennessee, when President Trump uh, declared a national emergency on the southern border with the intent of diverting funds that Congress had appropriated for military construction projects towards border wall construction, said this is not right. This is why we had a revolution, so that Congress could be in charge, the people could be in charge of how the money is spent and not a kingly figure. And more recently, we've had uh, Republicans complaining about how President Trump has handled foreign policy matters, how he's uh, pulled our troops out of Syria, uh, how he's killed an Iranian official without informing Congress or getting its consent. I mean, mostly it's been Democrats complaining, but it's been bipartisan. There's a clip that uh, I'd like to play and have you react to it. I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. Is that true? He can do whatever he wants? The founders would have said, no, of course. The executive power, as they laid out in Article 2, was a limited power. Um, They allowed it to be broadly interpreted, but it was within a context where Congress was the chief policy-making body, and there were checks and balances. There was the courts, the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. The founders had just carried out a war, a revolutionary war against a king. They didn't intend to create another king. So let's step back for a moment. I have uh, two children. One is in uh, fourth grade and the other is in seventh grade. And they learn in their history and social studies classes that there's the executive branch, the judiciary branch, and the legislative branch. Can you just wrap up a little bit about you know, what they would learn in school, what the founding fathers envisioned, and then let's talk about what is actually going on now. Okay, so we've all heard about the checks and balances that the founders envisioned. And those, right. those three entities, the legislative branch, Congress, the executive branch, president, and the courts, the judicial branch, were supposed to check each other when the right. one was trying to get to grab too much power for itself. Let's think about Congress and particularly how Trump has stretched laws where Congress has delegated president's power. And there are two 1970s laws that are examples. The National Emergencies Act, which allows presidents to declare emergencies and to divert funding uh, quickly toward those emergencies. And that's what Trump did to build border wall. And the War Powers Resolution, which was designed to require presidents to go to Congress uh, to get Congress's assent to wage war on another nation. Now, Trump has stretched both of those in building the border wall and in killing Iranian General Qassam Soleimani. And I think an important point to make is that those laws were passed in the 70s. It was a different world then, a different Congress, a a Congress that where bipartisanship was more common, where the polarization had not taken hold as it has now. And so those Congresses in the 1970s might have said to President Trump, you've taken this too far. We're going to overrule you. 
the Congresses today are incapable of doing that. They're too polarized. They cannot muster the kind of super majorities that are needed to pass laws over a presidential veto. Interesting. And you've sort of, you've answered this in a way, but I'm going to ask it in a more explicit way. Isn't it fair to say that Congress has been complicit in Trump's power grab? Well, yes, because it is so polarized and it cannot muster those super majorities that would be required to overrule a veto. But also in another way, Congress has stepped down on the job in terms of tackling the hard policy issues facing the country. For example, immigration. Congress has been grappling with this issue for years. The concept of the comprehensive immigration reform, which I'm sure our listeners have heard of, dates to 2005, when John McCain and Ted Kennedy, two senators who are both now dead, came up with the idea of providing a path to citizenship for unauthorized immigrants while increasing security along the border. Well, Congress hasn't been able to pass a law to do that. And so that opens up an arena for presidents to say, hey, if you can't take care of the serious matters affecting our country, I'm going to have to take that on myself. Let's stay with the example of immigration. It's been this it's been this ping pong ball between the presidents and Congress, right? I mean, I remember uh, during Bush, then Mexican President Vicente Fox was in Washington when 9-11 happened, and the president was going to be announcing a huge deal on immigration that was tabled. And it seems like ever since then, it's been this back and forth. And when fast forward to President Trump, when he came into office, I remember the first continuing resolution that was up when it came to the budget, and he said to lawmakers, well, come up with something and I'll abide by it. And I know it's more complicated than that, but nonetheless, it's been this back and forth between Congress and the presidency. Right. And Congress has not been able to send laws to the uh, bills to the president for the president to sign dealing with immigration matters. And as a result, you see a president like Trump stretching his power. I'm going to build the border wall with emergency funding. I'm going to reach a deal with Mexico to keep asylum seekers on their side of the border and have them vet them. This is arguably a violation of international law. I'm going to separate families who've arrived at the border, their parents from their children. And this is before the courts. And so he is saying, stop me. I'm going to deal with these problems. Congress, you can't stop me. Maybe the courts can So before we get to the courts, are there any other examples that you can rattle off of of the current president stretching his power? Absolutely. I mean, another immigration example is the uh, so-called Muslim ban, which is really a ban on travel from several majority Muslim countries. Uh, You'll recall very early in his presidency, Trump issued an executive order banning this travel, and the court said, no, you can't do that. That's, that's going to beyond your authority. Well, he revised it again, and the court said no again. He revised it a second time, and then it was approved. So he's finding ways to get around limits on presidential power. The most telling, I think, from a bipartisan perspective is on foreign policy, because even there where a majority of members of Congress, representatives and senators, disagree with him, they haven't been able to overrule him. For example, there was a 
a desire among a majority of members of Congress to stop U.S. funding military aid to Saudi Arabia. And this was the result of two things. One, the Sauds are funding a very brutal war in Yemen in which thousands of civilians have been killed. And second, the Sauds killed a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, and uh, there was a, they pa- the Congress said no, and they passed a, a bill saying you have to stop. Well, Trump vetoed it, and they can't muster the two-thirds required to overrule. Um, so I think that's a telling example where, where Trump is stretching his power and saying to Congress, stop me. So he's playing chicken with Congress. Where are the courts? It's interesting. The courts, uh, you'll recall, the day after his election, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, ran an ad, uh, full-page ad in the New York Times saying, we're going to see you in court, Mr. President. You know, and there was kind of uh, some bravado there. You know, you're going to try to do things that well, the courts are going to stop you and we're going to make the courts stop you. But now, more than three years into his presidency, I think it's fair to say that the courts have, for the most part, not stopped him when he's stretched the bounds of his power. And let, let's think about this. There is an example um, where the courts did stop him, the citizenship question on the census. Trump wanted to add a uh, question on the 2020 census, are you a U.S. citizen? Uh, and the court, the Supreme Court said he couldn't do that, so they took the question off. So that's one example where the court stepped in. But consider the ban on travel from Muslim-majority countries. The courts uh, stopped it twice, but on the third revision, they've let it through. Consider the declaration of a national emergency on the southern border. The courts are still pondering that. I mean, meanwhile, Trump is building fencing along the border while the, while the courts are, are still thinking on it. So I think what Trump is doing is taking advantage of the culture of our courts, which has been to be reluctant to make sweeping rulings that overrule elected officials, the people's representatives. And courts are, prefer to take things slow and, if possible, to issue narrow rulings. And the idea in that is to throw it back to the legislature and say, think about this. You know, can't you come up with a better solution? Can't you, can't you get around this mess? And as a result, Trump presses ahead and the courts don't stop. That's really interesting. And I'm curious to know, you sort of hinted at it before, but let's hit it a little bit harder. Where does that leave policies and policy making, which was always sort of an act by Congress and lawmakers? I think increasingly the executive is going to be the one tackling the important issues facing the country and not Congress. There may be examples such as the the tax law that Congress passed in 2017, where Congress still passes grand legislation. But for the most part, it's going to be executive actions that we're going to be debating, such as not just things Trump has done, like building the border wall or, or changing our immigration policies. Um, but, you know, Obama, too, he used regulatory power to try to combat climate change. He declared greenhouse gases uh, regulatable under the Clean Air Act. I mean, these were stretching sort of the traditional bounds of what was considered uh, presidential power. And Congress hadn't pondered greenhouse gases when it passed the Clean Air Act. 
So where does that leave Congress? I mean, what's their job then? Increasingly, I'd say the the Congress, uh, the majority, uh, if you you share the president's party in Congress, if you're a Republican right now, your job is to get behind the president, to help him accomplish his ends. And that may not mean passing laws, but just supporting his position, supporting his ability and power to do the things he does. And there's been little acts of rebellion, which we've referenced, you know, some Republicans rejecting his emergency declaration. Let's talk a little bit about the rebellion. I'm sorry, I know I cut you off, but it's sort of a perfect place to put it. But can you talk about how this president has sort of marshaled his cabinet, his generals, if you will, or his, you know, lieutenants to squelch any sort of challengers, especially from his party? Can you give an example? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, with the killing in January of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, there was some concern that Republicans in Congress would say, you know, this is going a bit far. We need to have a say in this sort of dropping bombs on government officials, foreign government officials. And there was a number of House members who rebelled on it, House Republicans who, who voted to, to condemn it. And there was a little bit of, a, of opposition in the Senate uh, as well. And so the president sent his defense secretary, Mark Esper, to make the case, basically, that you need to get behind me and I have the authority to make decisions about foreign policy, about matters of life and death, about matters of war, without Congress's involvement. Weren't there still some rebels, so to speak? There, in the Senate, the, the primary one was Mike Lee, uh, a, a Trump skeptic uh, from Utah, a libertarian-minded uh, Republican who asked Esper, you know, are there any limits here where you would have to come to Congress and ask our permission to go to uh, engage in violence? And Esper couldn't give him any. And Lee was astonished. He said, That was insulting. That was demeaning to the process ordained by the Constitution, and I find it completely unacceptable. So we've got this situation now. We're approaching the 2020 election, the 2020 presidential election. President Trump has just been acquitted uh, during the impeachment trial. Wrap it all up for me. What are the takeaways for the future? And I'm curious to know whether you think this is, you know, has President Donald J. Trump redefine the American presidency? Yes. And let's think about it. Um, We're heading into an era of even greater executive power uh, and less congressional power. Uh, What what is my evidence for this? Well, let's say President Trump is reelected. We know his modus operandi. But the people are still a check on him. Uh, The people still have a say in November. They could elect someone else. The Democratic candidate could win. So could that uh, reverse this trend? Could that, could that candidate say, I want to again make Congress the chief policymaking body and return to norms of yesteryear? Let's think on that. That Democratic president will come into office having made promises to his voters that he or she is going to accomplish certain things. And they will then go to Congress and ask Congress to to take action. Well, they're going to be facing most likely a divided Congress with a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. Even if Democrats were to win the Senate, they're not going to get the 60 votes that they would need to move important policy and controversial policy legislation. 
So that president is going to be confronted with the gridlock that presidents of, of, of recent decades have found in Congress and is then going to have to make a choice. Do I allow this gridlock to squelch my agenda or do I do what my predecessor did and take executive action to fulfill my campaign promises? Wow. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of information there and a lot of food for thought. And I can hear next podcast, it'd be great to get two lawmakers, one from each side that are on their way out and, and sort of really grill them about this and say, is there a way to reverse it? Should it be reversed? Um, or is this the 21st century presidency in the United States? Absolutely. Thanks for letting me sit in. It was a pleasure, Joanne. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Zeller. The producer of this show was Evan Campbell. CQ on Congress is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. We'll see you next week.